ABC Radio and on the ABC Listen app. This is Suzanne Hill. Now, a warning, this next conversation could get you watering uncontrollably at the mouth with very hard-to-resist cravings for a slice of pavlova. Yum. But if you ask any Aussie to name a truly national dish, well, the chances are they'll offer the pav as one of our greatest contributions to the culinary world. But is it? We know there's been a long-raging trans-Tasman debate. New Zealand reckon they actually created it back in the 20s, a decade before our claim to the dessert. Could it be that we're both losers in this competition, that <coughs> pavlovas have actually been around for a lot longer than we think and started far from here? Uh, Annabelle Utrecht is a food historian. She's researched the origins of the pav for the past 10 years her findings might be controversial. Hello, Annabelle. Welcome to Nightlife. Hello, and thank you for having me. And I've been really looking forward to this <laughs> and sharing in a spirit of conciliation. I'm over Pavlova Wars. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what we want to do is um, keep things peace, love and mung beans on the Pavlova level. Strawberries and cream, I think. Not mung oh, beans. absolutely. Mung beans yep. have no place on a pav. Let's get that clear. I don't know from the... Uh, some of the historical paths I've dealt with are savoury, so mung beans might go well on no. it. No, <laughs> savoury paths. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But that's a whole other story. Okay, we'll, we'll see if we get that. So how did this all begin 10 years ago? How did you end up going down this rabbit hole of pavlova history? Oh, and it has been a rabbit hole. So um, it began with a chance encounter with Dr Andrew Paulwood, who was a New Zealand um, Kiwi academic historian, art historian, and social commentator. And we'd connected on, uh, you know, a social media platform and uh, (laughs) we had a little run-in over the pavlova and its origins. Andrew is a patriotic New Zealander and I'm a patriotic first-generation Australian. So we had a little clash over where the pavlova came from and Andrew really schooled me. He let me know that the earliest pavlova recipe was actually a New Zealand recipe and that completely conflicted with everything I understood about pavlovas. So uh, I decided to go away and do a little bit of research on the sly and Andrew, unbeknownst to me, did exactly the same with this um, mission to prove each other wrong once and for all. And we met again a few days later in the, you know, in the social media space and uh, we were a little bit more conciliatory because we'd made some discoveries and we we discovered that the legend story is not as straightforward as it is, as is, as it is sort of, as it is portrayed to us. And in that in that point in time, we sort of thought, well, this is very interesting. So we continued our journey. And after a few weeks, we had a lot of information. We decided, hey, let's do a little documentary series because this is very interesting. And I'm sure Australians and New Zealanders would want to, you know, share in the information that we've got. So we started collating and going deeper down the rabbit holes. <laughs> and like you said, 10 years later, we've decided, no, this is too big for a documentary series we're going to have to put it into some other sort of form. And Andrew suggested a book. So we had a couple of years off due to, you know, Annabelle, sort of Annabelle, I'm just going to interrupt you because it seems that our system has decided to have a little uh, SPAC attack. So we're going to just reset our system and uh, come back to you. Perhaps, Robbie, you're thinking we'll, we'll get Annabelle back on the phone. So, Annabelle, 
Come back to us on the phone. We'll call you and then uh, hopefully we'll be able to get this PAV discussion back up and running properly. Now, by the way, if you have a question about PAV history, Annabelle is happy to take it on for you, whatever it might be. We will delve with Annabelle once we get her back into the, the Australian claim the Kiwi claim, but then we've got a lot more to explore. As I mentioned at the beginning, we've got Spain, we've got Syria, we've got Italy, um, perhaps the Moors. So we've got lots of places to go with this uh, this Pavlova story. Annabelle, I'm sorry, the technology has let us down. It's it's like a failed Pavlova, you know. You had oh. such high hopes and then it failed. I, I understand, and I am in regional Queensland, so that's a very big disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Annabelle, so what I want to do first is we'll look at the Australian claim, then we'll look at the New Zealand claim. So what is the Australian claim? What does the story say? Well, the Australian claim is actually, well, there's one predominant claim and there's three others that are lesser claims and given very little airtime. So I'm happy to tell you what the... Um, the Australian uh, legends are the minor legends and then the major legends, if you would like me to. Okay, so we've got three minor legends and then the big legend. Let's go through those. Okay, so the minor legend number one is that, and the backdrop to this is Anna Pavlova's 1926 tour of both Australia and New Zealand. So legend number one for Australia is a hostess in Melbourne concocted the dessert in honour of Pavlova when she came to visit Australia. The second legend is along similar lines, and that goes something to the effect of a chef at a Melbourne hotel concocted the dessert in Anna Pavlova's honour in 1926. The third minor legend, which is very interesting, is a Sydney transposition. So it's a hostess in Sydney concocted the Pavlova cake in honour of her guest Anna Pavlova in 1926. So most people don't hear those legends and they're very interesting. The fourth legend, of course, is the legend of Herbert Sachs, who is uh, or was a chef at the Esplanade Hotel in Perth. And so how does this story go? How did he begin the Pavlova here? So the story with Bert Sachs is he was the head chef charged at the hotel to you know, provide guests with interesting menus and he was asked by the management of the hotel to create something new and interesting for people to enjoy, particularly the ladies that lunched in the afternoon tea set. So he thought about it and he thought to himself he wanted to tackle the um, meringue because he felt that meringues, meringue cakes were too crusty and too dry. So he wanted to, he designed to create a meringue cake that would be cloud-like, cut like marshmallow, but still have that beautiful outer crust. So he went away and he laboured for, you know, a couple of weeks and took input from fellow staff members. And eventually the recipe that he finalised on was presented to the management of the Esplanade Hotel, who were the Paxton family. And um, upon receiving the new cake, Mrs Paxton is said to have commented on its airiness and its lightness. And Harry Nairn, who was the house manager of the Esplanade at that time, he said it should be named Pavlova after the dancer of the century. So this occurred in... Bertsax gives two accounts of this particular uh, 
creation narrative. The first time he says it's 1934 and in the second interview he says 1935. So I call it the 1934-1935 Pavlova. And of course Anna Pavlova has been, you know, deceased for, you know, either three or four years depending on when he created the Pavlova. So it's a posthumous naming of a cake, not a, not a, not a culinary tribute while she was alive. So that, that's the pervert sex legend. And if you go with that legend, you're going to have a few problems because there's a few awkward realities. Okay. Now, so so are you saying that this story doesn't stack up or the big problem with it is that New Zealand just got there earlier? The problem with it is that uh, it doesn't stack up because there are earlier pavlova cake recipes both in Australia and in New Zealand. So whilst Bert's Pav is truly unique in terms of its ingredients. He created his cake using a ratio of corn flour, vinegar and corn and uh, cornstarch, sorry, corn flour, vinegar and cream of tartar, which were the stabilizers that give it that really marshmallowy texture. The Pavlova cake itself, or that naming, had been in use already in Australia and in New Zealand before his invention. So he didn't invent the cake, he invented a um, style of a style of cake within that family. Okay, so can we trace the so the earlier ones in Australia? Are you saying they were named Pavlova or they were Pavlovas? Well, there's two. There were Pavlovas, as in there were large meringue cakes topped with whipped cream and fruit, so just meringue cakes already in Australia. But there were also Pavlova cakes in Australia before that time. And I can I can sort of refer you on to listeners that are interested. There is a, um, a little uh, feature in, I think it's the Advocate of Bernie Tasmania in 1935, in September of 1935 from memory. And that newspaper clipping says, there are lots of different types of pavlova, ranging from the very simple to the highly elaborate. And it goes on to provide a recipe for a simple pavlova. So that indicates that Already on the East Coast, <laughs> there are lots and lots of different pavlovas. And in another aspect, Bert's uh, creation claim doesn't stack up in terms of, uh, if we look at the very early pavlovas that are in Perth and Western Australia around about the 1930s, they're all very different to his pavlova in terms of their ingredient makeup. So there's a little bit of a problem there, but I have to say I still love Bert. It's pavlova. I've made it a few times, and uh, I, I think that um, I think that it really stacks up in terms of if you want something lovely on the table, put Bert's pavlova down. So, how will eating Bert's pavlova be different to a pav that you or I might make using a kind of a standard Australian pav recipe? Well, his pavlova was really interesting. So, when you make Bert's pavlova, he doesn't blend the sugar into his egg white. What he does is he folds it in. So he basically takes the whole volume of sugar and folds it in gently. So there's no, you know, you know how everyone says, you know, put a tablespoon of sugar in and make sure that's all, you know, completely worked into the egg white before you put the next tablespoon of sugar in. He doesn't do that. He just plops the whole lot in, turns it over with a spoon, pops it in a pan, and then over the top of the meringue, he'll either sprinkle, or he, in his original pavlov, he either sprinkled arrowroot or sugar crystals to give it that outer crunchy crust. So Bert's pavlova is like uh, other meringue cakes, but it's just made with a little tweak and it is literally a lot more um, cloud-like. It is really, really a pillow of, of white meringue. Mm. Now, Annabelle, in the Australia v New Zealand debate, if we then accept that we, we've got another history further back to explore, does New Zealand actually win? Well, New Zealand 
has been crowned. You don't want to say it, do you? But you have to. (laughs) Well, well, it's even it's even worse than that. (laughs) So New Zealand has been crowned the um, the originator of the pavlova because in 1929 we find a pavlova cake in New Zealand, and based on that higher authorities have said, well, clearly it was invented in New Zealand. But I, I have a few issues with that. And um, when when you look at Pavlova's movements for 1929 and you look at all this build-up build up, uh, for her 1929 Australia-only tour, there is some anecdotal evidence that the Pavlova might actually have been in Australia before it made its way to New Zealand. So... There is a, there is a, there is a, a I have a real beef <laughs> with, with saying it's definitively New Zealand based on the evidence. And I can, I can share a little bit with listeners if they want to know a little bit more about the 1929 Pavlova cake, because I think it would surprise people to know what it actually was and what its toppings were. Yes, go on. Well, the 1929 Pavlova cake that comes from New Zealand is two round meringues, meringue, Romarian cakes that have been baked in well-buttered tints. So immediately that idea that the pavlova is going to be this light white, you know, sort of um, fulsome cake is dismissed because you've got this two sort of discoloured, golden-coloured meringues. And this pavlova isn't topped with anything. It's just filled with a cherry, nut and uh, whipped cream filling. So it's a meringue sandwich, and that is in context with the times. Meringue sandwiches had been enormously popular from the late 19th century all the way through to the 1930s and 40s. So it doesn't look like the pavlova that you would expect it to be, nothing like Bert's pavlova. But even more interesting than that is when we look at the ingredients. Now, uh, the legend, if we were to talk about the legend in New Ze- the legend for the creation of the pavlova in New Zealand, the first legend is that the pavlova cake was created in Wellington by a chef who was so enamoured by the ballerina that he produced this homage dish in front of her, for her, and called it a pavlova cake. And the expansion on that particular legend is that he topped the his cake with kiwi fruit slices um, inspired by one of the costumes that she wore on stage. And then there is a second take on that Wellington legend, which says something to the effect of the Pavlova cake was made in anticipation of Anna Pavlova's 1926 visit to New Zealand and an unnamed ballerina associated with a Wellington ballet company approached a chef and asked the chef, having heard that Anna Pavlova liked meringues, that he was, could he produce something that they could present to her? So this chef went away and produced three different variants and they chose the soft-scented large variety and then they named it Pavlova and then presented it to the dancer. I like the second version of that take better than the first, the romantic, nostalgic version of the, you know, a chef building a cake for it. But there's no kiwi fruit on the cake at all. It's cherries and walnuts. And what we need to look at is Anna Pavlova. Now, she visited Australia and New Zealand in 1926, and in 1929 she returned only to do an Australian tour. And in that tour, she's very well uh, written about in the newspapers for one particular costume, which included cherries on the costume. It was her Mm. Columbine costume. But not only did it include cherries on the costume in her Australian uh, Australian tour, it included gold appliques, which some might say are a little bit like nuts. So I think the cherry and walnut fitting in this 
in this meringue pavlova. Was inspired by the 29 tour when she came to Australia. Yeah. Therefore, yeah. it's ours. Well, we're not going to go there. We're not going to go there. But what I can say too is I have a very interesting newspaper clipping and we have a very interesting photograph which lends more weight to the case that perhaps Anna Pavlova, and I can contextualise it this way too, Anna Pavlova came to Australia in 1929 in the March and she toured until mid-July and the Pavlova cake in New Zealand pops up three months after she's left Australia. So the question has to be asked, might that Pavlova cake have jumped the Tasman as so many other dishes have done over time? And maybe we'll never know. I've got Annabelle Utrecht here, a food historian who, as you can hear, is absolutely passionate about pavlova history. Now, I'm a a bit worried, Annabelle, because you've got so much information about the pavlova that we might miss out on all this interesting exotic stuff that you have to tell us. Because if we just sort of separate the Australian-New Zealand debate, and I'm never letting it go anyway, um, (laughs) but you you actually think that the dishes like the pavlova, so obviously not called the pavlova, but dishes like them, go back well before Anna Pavlova pulled on her first tutu, and that maybe it's linked to the Moors. Explain this. Well, you can't talk about pavlova cakes without talking about meringue cakes. And you can't talk about meringue cakes without talking about meringue, the substance. And meringue, at its very basic, is a whipped egg white and sugar amalgam. And so you can't talk about meringue without looking at sugar. So what Andrew and I did was we went back in time and we wanted to figure out when sugar meringues entered the European culinary dialogue and how. So what we ended up finding out was, well, what we ended up sort of stumbling upon was lots and lots of different recipes that come from Moorish, particularly caliphate cuisine, which are egg white, foamed egg white dishes, often stabilised with maybe a a pinch of starch or something like that to keep the the, um, egg foams nice and airy. And they're used, these these foamed egg whites were combined with either honeys, like in the case of natif, which, you know, you can find, natif is a bit, is another word for nougat, basically. So you can find 10th century Syrian nougat recipes in Aleppo, and you can find across the medieval Muslim world other dishes which are made of whipped egg whites, which were plunged into sugar syrups to be served, or, you know, other dishes. One of my favourites is um, a dish called alfratis, which is uh, a whipped egg white dish which was put over richly sourced chickens or fish dishes and of course meringue is a great insulator so when these dishes were baked they were um they were you know came out the flesh came out so tender and this is a sixth century recipe that comes from you know sort of the the Greek area, which made its way into Europe, and it was actually handed on to Theodoric uh, I, who was the son of Clovis, who was the Merovingian king at the time, just sort of 90 miles, seated in Rheim, 90 miles out of Paris. And so we have this really nice uh, movement of these Moorish Persian um, dishes into Europe very early on. But other than the recipes moving that are very interesting recipes of foamed egg whites, what you have is the introduction of sugar, which is the you know, you know, an important part of meringue making. And so what we've found was that in um, around about the ninth century, the Moorish conquest of Sicily introduced the first sugars, rices and spices into that part of the world. And the Sicilians were able to produce the most gorgeous foods and sophisticated desserts from, you know, this new sugar product that they were getting because the Arabs, had this, you know, had the cartel basically on sugar at that time. 
And recipes move and exchange upwards, you know, up through Europe slowly. But most of Europe doesn't get its taste for sugar until the 12th century when crusaders come back from, the, you know, the holy wars in the Middle East and they bring back the, you know, sweet salt as they called it. But sugar was incredibly expensive still in the 12th and 13th and 14th and 15th century. In fact, sugar didn't become a cheap thing until the 19th century. So what we found was that um, the Portuguese had displaced the Arab sugar trade around about the 15th century. And the Portuguese, along with the Habsburgs, which was a royal dynast, uh, were able to take over the sugar major players, so to speak, in the sugar industry. And of course, it's in Portugal and it's in particularly Habsburg, Spain, that you're going to start to find the evolution of the dish we know as meringue today, more or less. Okay, so we think that the, the meringue sort of what evolved up through the Iberian Peninsula. Well, we, we think that um, we know that um, proto-meringues, which are dishes that are almost like meringue, mm. uh, sort of um, uh, come from Moorish cuisine. And we know that that in cookbooks like the Arte Cucina, which is a cookbook that was published in um, 1611 in the Spanish Habsburg um, court in Madrid, we know that that cookbook is filled with sugar-inclusive recipes because they had the sugar, they had the you know the monopoly on sugar, and in those recipes you're going to find proto meringues, which are these you know very primitive meringues. Some of them might even look like royal icing paste rather than be meringue. Wow. But meringue will evolve and will continue to evolve. And sort of by about, you know, 1580, you know, 1600, we have meringue as a substance. It's not called meringue at that point in time. It's given lots of different names in lots of different territories. But we have meringue at that point. And, of course, uh, more sophisticated meringue desserts uh, are produced in the royal kitchens. And so what we find in um, places like uh, Vienna, by the late 18th century, these large meringue cakes are actually being produced, being baked. Some of some of them we might recognise as something that looks like a pavlova gone wrong, but then by <laughs> by the very early 19th century, we have cakes identical to pavlova. So large meringue cakes topped with whipped cream so and fruit early, or nuts. Early 19th century. Early 19th century. So this is so, a good hundred years before our pavs. Well before our pavlova. Oh. And the cheaper sugar gets, the more um, these meringue de- recipes become middle, yeah. uh, sort of middle class desserts and, and much loved by the middle class. Okay, and now also- Annabelle, I just have to make sure because I can see we're going to run out of time for everything you know about pavlovas, that there is some, uh, there's a bit of a story that involves the American Midwest too. What's that got to do with pavs? Yeah, so uh, what you find is that within the Habsburgs um, territories, and the Habsburgs was a dynasty that occupied most of Europe, you know, the Holy Roman Emperor was a Habsburg, basically. And uh, what you find in Habsburg kitchens is that you get these um, very large, very elaborate um, meringue cakes topped with whipped cream and fruit. Probably the best known um, to audience members might be Spanish or wind tort, which basically means Spanish souffle cake, you know, if you, if you want to know that what wind represented in this. 
And um, these these cakes were much beloved and beloved cakes and really popular. And so what happens is Europe in the 19th century is really a disaster zone. You know, if it's not wars, it's plagues. And if it's not plagues, it's, you know, totalitarian governments. So, so lots of people migrate. And there are these huge exoduses and migrations out of Europe, particularly the German-speaking lands where there might have been religious oppression or political oppression. And people will resettle. And, of course, like my mum and dad, when they came to a new place, they bring their traditions with them and they bring their recipes. So in places like the Midwest in America, you find these little hot spots where you're going to find either Baser Torta, which is short for Kiss Cake, which is a or that's that's its anglicised name, Kiss Cake. So you're going to find Baser Torta, which is Kiss Cake, which is a large meringue topped with whipped cream or maybe two meringues with whipped cream. And then you're going to find other dishes, particularly the Schaum Torta, which is the foam cake. And foam cakes are these absolutely glorious cakes, which by the 1860s are identical to pavlova. Some are one story, some are two story, some are three story, but in essence, they're a meringue cake topped with whipped cream, fruit, nuts or fruit preserves. So all of these pavlovas were basically being developed independently, it sounds, and we here in Australia sort of came up with ours and look, look, look what we've invented, where it had already been invented before. Yeah, it's very oh. tricky. I, th- I think we, I think we appropriated, mm. and we we made it our own. It. We made it our own. And don't forget, Anna Pavlova loved cherries, so of course cherries are going to be on her, um, on her, you know, homage tort, or the very first one that we kn- we know about. But um, Anna Pavlova also loved other lighter desserts, so she loved whipped cream and fruit. She loved jelly. She loved ice cream was her favourite dessert. So uh, all of these things can go on a pavlova. So we have this dessert that can morph into different things, different um, ingredients will turn it into something completely new and novel. So I think I think in terms of the pavlova cake, it was a rebranding of a cake that was already known and that she would have loved it. Oh, sounds wonderful. Annabelle, whatever way you spin it, I'm still hungry for one. Now, I know you've got a book on Pavs, I think, coming out later this year, so we will keep an eye out for that one. Um, can I thank you so much for sharing some of your passion for Pavs here with us on Nightlife no, tonight? No worries. No worries. I'm sorry about the technical glitches. Uh, it's par for the course. Uh, thanks, Annabelle. Uh, Annabelle Utrecht, who is a food historian and PAV enthusiast. This is Nightlife with Suzanne Hill.